relax, you can sit down now. <laughs> That's enough work. <laughs> okay, we're going to go uh, on a journey into, uh, into the area of social action. I'm going to ask some questions. But this is your session. I want you to be able to ask questions of me. Um, but to facilitate it, because there's, there's a large number of people here, I'd say straight away, if you've come with a burning question about social action or anything to do with it, could you write it down, hand it to the end of the row? If you get handed a note, it's your job to walk and pop it on the stage just there. Is that right? Okay? So and we collect those notes as, as I start to speak. Please don't wait till the end. We haven't got much time at all. Okay? So I just pass the notes to the end, and I shall try and deal with them. I just want to um, just uh, start by just saying what an amazing, amazing gathering this is, isn't it? We talk about being a people movement and a movement of faith. And that is about more, has to be about more, than just meeting in a celebration. You know, I'm tired of prophesying to the walls of the ghetto, aren't you? Our Heavenly Father is calling us to prophesy to our entire world. And, you know, I often, I often say this, people may not love our God, but they love our values. I've said that before. Actually, People may not know our God, but they feel, they know, may not know the God of love, but they feel the love of God. And so the love of God, is, as it's expressed by us in acts of kindness and generosity, is often the most amazing key to unlock the doors to people's hearts. But the big risk is this. I'll tell you this. There's a massive risk of integrity in social action. If your agenda is to get involved in a homeless project to win homeless men or women for Jesus Christ, please leave. If your agenda is to go and work with prisoners in order to see them all find faith in Jesus Christ, please don't go. I want you to hear me. I'm an evangelist. I consider myself an evangelist. But people will understand your twisted motives from 100 meters. Yep. If they understand that the only reason you're giving a cup of coffee to a homeless man on the street is because you want to chalk him up as a convert for Jesus Christ, then how is that an unconditional love of that individual? Does that make sense? It's really, really important for us. For the, the love that people feel is unconditional. When we first started HIV, the a charity called AIDS, uh, it started out of uh, an encounter with just one person who, uh, who traumatized me because he was dying, he was on his own in a glass line box in a London teaching hospital and without family, without a doctor, without a nurse. And I could not understand how anybody in modern medicine could be allowed to die like that. He was not on the right treatments for someone who was about to meet his maker. He was on all kinds of treatments which were just not appropriate to the stage of his body. And I came off that ward absolutely shaken with one thing in my mind, which is how could I make that person's life better? Now, I tell you this, if someone on that ward had thought that my only motive uh, going on the ward was to start an AIDS initiative and to see many people saved for Jesus Christ, they would have kicked me quite rightly out of the hospital. Okay? You understand? So it's really important, really important. And that led to a, a, a movement which happened by accident because I came back and I talked to a church leader in our home, in our church, um, and uh, shared what had been to me a traumatic day. 
And I couldn't get my own doctors and nurse colleagues to get involved. It was like Ebola. People were so scared. And, uh, and uh, he recognized that God was speaking to something to us as a movement of churches. And as I began to share it with a group of church leaders, there was uh, tears and, and, uh, and, and repentance. And all of us recognized that something had been very wrong in our own hearts. Because I had been very reluctant, I have to say, to get involved in HIV. I, I was a cancer doctor. I wasn't programmed or trained to deal with sex diseases. And I didn't really want to. I didn't feel a sense of calling to do so. In fact, I, if anything, I felt um, I wanted to go in the other direction. But God had his own plans. And when I went onto that ward for the first time, I'll never forget it. I saw a ward full of young men, all of them in my particular city at that stage in the global pandemic. All of that particular group had, had a, a gay background. All of them had become infected through relationships with other men. And all of them were dying of an illness which was completely preventable. And we had no cure or vaccine at that time. And I was convicted by God because I, I, had, I suddenly realized, as suddenly for me, that you know, who was I to, uh, to, to judge? Who was, uh, how dare I? I was, I was dead. I was dead uh, in, in my own life, but God saved me. Jesus rescued me. Yeah, uh, all of us were dead. All of us yeah. fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans says, Paul says in Romans. None of us have the right to judge. When the woman who was caught in adultery was brought before Jesus' feet, and he was interrupted in a meeting a bit like this, and suddenly there was a group of angry men, they interrupted him, they heckled him, he had to stop teaching. The woman is thrown down to the ground as, as a disheveled, crumpled heap of humanity, broken, thrown down there by angry men. There was no women judging her, there was just men. It takes two to have sex. But the man was nowhere to be found. So men had brought a woman to Jesus for him to judge. And under the law, she should have been stoned to death. And you know what happened, which is that Jesus looked at her and looked at him, at these men, and then stared them out. And he, he began to draw in the sand and then comes up with this incredible statement. You have, you have uh, never allowed your eyes to stray on anything inappropriate on the web. Here. You have never been resentful. Uh, you never lost your temper with your children. You've never been irritated with a colleague at work. Uh, you've never been jealous of anybody else. You've never been. Uh, you've never. Um, uh, you've never done anything wrong. I can see it all over your faces. Such perfect people. Here, <laughs> yeah. I'm offering you a stone. And we know what happened. The older ones left first. And then eventually even the angry young men snarling away, they slank off and disappeared. Until no one is left except the woman and Jesus. And Jesus turns to her and he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says two things. For the first, he is loved. And for the second, he was crucified. For the first statement, you will be loved. And for the second, you will be criticized. The first statement he says to the woman, 
neither do I condemn you. Second, he says, is go. Leave your life of sin. Let's start again. And that's how the asset ministry grew. We started uh, um, uh, caring for people at home, doing the, what the doctors and nurses and social workers and others seemed reluctant to do. We're training people just like yourselves to wipe bottoms, walk dogs, collect scripts, do whatever was necessary to show the unconditional love of God to people in need. And we started to train youth workers and evangelists to go into schools to teach about the illness that we were seeing spreading across the world so fast. And our criteria was this. If you haven't cared, you've got nothing to say. We don't want you going in schools if you haven't wiped someone's bottom who's dying of AIDS. Why? You earn the right to speak. So that was the criteria. So uh, all of our trainers uh, had to work with people with HIV, uh, men, women, and children. And the work just grew, it just expanded, and it just exploded. And before we knew where we are, it had gone global across the whole of the UK. And uh, within two years, we were in Uganda, Thailand, Romania, and now we're in 15 countries or so today, I, I lose track. And from Zimbabwe to Congo to, to uh, uh, Russia to uh, Ukraine uh, to India to Thailand to um, uh, Nigeria and so on. And I thank God for this. And in every country, it's Christian men and women responding to a call of God to make a difference to people showing unconditional love of God to those who have sometimes known no love. And you know, um, because it's like Ebola, because it's like leprosy was in the time of Jesus, you know, sometimes, um, now I've, I've, been, I've been in tears in a clinic in India. Why? Because there's a woman who's come to us, and as the doctor is putting his hand on her shoulder and listening to her chest uh, with, the, with, the, with his uh, special equipment, she says, you are the first person to touch me in five years. When I go to the government clinic, they see me at the end of the desk, but they will not touch me. I am a leper. I am outcast. My husband threw me out of the marriage bed. I, my children won't touch me. The relatives have disowned me because of my diagnosis. We are called to show the unconditional love of God. Now, I'll tell you this. If it got round that the only reason the clinic runs is because it's run out of an evangelism budget, and it's just basically a recruiting front for, uh, for the church, can you see how much it would undermine but I tell you the fact is that hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people have found faith in Christ through that work in that particular city in India. They've been prayed for, uh, they've received a, a, a peace, they've found forgiveness with their God, and they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when Sheila and I were there recently for a big anniversary, many, many of the staff and volunteers are people who have HIV, who have found faith in Christ from a from a different faith background, and his lives have been changed, and I thank God for that. So unconditional care is absolutely vital. The second lesson I've learned is to be careful. Um, you may, um, everything begins with a story, okay? Every social action movement, movement begins with a story. My story is of that young man who I will never, ever forget. Um, and uh, when, you, when you have a story like that, you have what I would call as a primary call. Uh, it's like a, a burning bush experience. God appears, it speaks to you through a story. And that story can become a story of an entire movement. 
And I can give you hundreds of examples of the most amazing Christian movements that have transformed different parts of this world as a result of one man, one woman, one teenager, with one encounter, with one human being who broke their heart and told them a truth about what they needed to do. And that story has become a primary call. Now, many of us have primary cause, but many of us have secondary cause. That is to say, we follow someone else's story. We become a volunteer in that movement. We, we raise funds for it. We organize for it. Can you see that a church, any church, can only have room for a certain number of primary callings? Does that make sense? Or else every single person, every time they have a bad day on a ward or looking after a homeless person, is suddenly trying to start an international global movement inside your congregation. And so many times, Christian people have said to me, oh, I'm so frustrated with the leader of my church. I said, why is that? Oh, he just doesn't get it. I said, what doesn't he get? Well, you know, we should be doing this people movement. because." I, I said, what about? Well, it's because, and then they come up with some particular person that's touched them, and they somehow think that the entire church should be behind that, and the entire movement of churches, and the whole of Shouts should make a three-hour session on it every week. They say, no, no, that's your primary calling, but actually... Actually, that's you. You just need to get on with it. This is what God has called you to do. And you take responsibility for that. But please don't put that burden on the whole of the rest of the church. Oh, we will be wiped out, right? Okay. However, every now and then, the Lord shows, uh, shows clearly it's something that becomes, is to become a community call. It's to become a church-wide call, an international call. And with asset. It happened again, and, and it's not because you decide we're going to create a global movement. No, it's something that God does. So with us, what happened was we had programs starting all over the world from people I'd never met, just because. So we had, uh, um, a, 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 we had a, um, a, an educator in, um, a, a, a volunteer educator trained to go into schools in the, youth in the UK as a, as a youth worker, um, um, felt a call to go to Czech Republic. I mean, he didn't talk to us about it. He just went. Praise God. And when he went there, he, he, he felt moved to start a schools program, a schools prevention program, looking, talking about sexuality, um, um, uh, pregnancy, drugs, alcohol, uh, preventing HIV, all this kind of stuff in schools. Got nowhere. Wrote a book. Got into a few schools. Was very depressed. More or less completely defeated. After two years, he has a farewell party at which there are 40 people who say goodbye. He says, I'm off back to New Zealand. He says, uh, I'm, I, maybe I misheard. Anyway, as he shared his heart and his vision, there was one man right at the back called Tomasz. And the first person was called Stuart. And, and, the, and, 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 the, and the guy at the back was called Tomasz. And he heard this, and there's tears pouring down his face. Tomasz, a Czech national, in drug, re drug rehab programs, Christian rehab programs, suddenly it's like the fire of God is coming onto his life. Suddenly it's like a light has come from the candle which has been held by one guy and has ignited his. And at that very moment, he knew that he was to champion that ministry. And you know what? From the day that guy who tried so hard for two years as a volunteer got on his plane and disappeared, the work started to grow. And soon, Thomas had written his own book. I think there's now 20, 40, 50, 60, 70,000 copies sold. Thomas himself has seen 60,000 young people. Most years, for the last 15 years, he's had teams of others working across the country, and soon he becomes a missionary himself. 
So uh, suddenly, uh, people in this church, in the old movement, there are people here from Slovakia, and, uh, and that particular church heard about what was happening in Czech, and they sent, and they trained, and Milan Presburger got trained and went back. He became a missionary, youth worker, evangelist in his own area, working in schools. In fact, soon Milan was, had written this, the national sex education syllabus for the entire nation of Slovakia as a 21-year-old youth worker. Wow. Amazing. Because the people may not love our God, but they love our values. So the Czech work continues to grow. Thomas then sends a missionary into Siberia. That missionary, as a Czech national, begins a new work in Russia, which is soon training youth people right across 11 and a half time zones. And so they're seeing 100,000 young people a year in post-communist Soviet Russia. Incredible stories. Next thing that happens is that um, they send another team into Ukraine. Ukraine starts a similar work. And then Ukraine and Russia work together, and they establish and plant Belarus. Listen, I've not been to any of these countries, I don't think. But these things are just happening. Why? Because God was in this movement, which became a faith movement, as men and women, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in different countries, suddenly realize that here are human beings made in the image of God, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, there's one gospel, there's one good news for the whole of humankind, and that applies to people with HIV as well, and to see the love of God. And so things can grow at incredible speed when in a way we step out of the way and just allow God to do what he's going to do. We had no strategy, very little budget, but these things all happened. Oh, a note. I'm more or less out, so if there's, if you, if there's a, oh, another one, all right, keep them coming. Okay, let's see how many we can get through. Traditional hierarchical church, like ACT, have been reluctant to engage with environmental issues. However, climate change poses an existential crisis. It does. How can we bring our churches to alert to take action that's urgently needed for the survival and well-being of our world? Um, I think that's an important issue. Environment is important. I'd start by saying, do it yourself. <laughs> okay, so go green. Um, buy the electric car. Um, put solar panels on your house. Be an enthusiastic, smiling advocate of amazing things. <laughs> okay. and, get your ch and your church will still get excited. Do you know why? Because it makes, it makes sense economically. It makes sense morally. It makes sense from the climate point of view. It adds profit to companies. This is just such an easy, easy thing to promote. But trying to insist that the whole church, you know, frog march, you know, I'm going to come and inspect your house to make sure that your carbon footprint is low. This is not going to work. Okay. <laughs> so very important that we gossip these things. How can a 16-year-old girl help in any way? You know, I think that whatever your age, I think the first thing is there are causes right around you which are, are, are compelling and important. If you're a 16-year-old girl, the first thing I'd say is that the greatest opportunities of your life in some ways are right in front of your eyes in your school. And I think of mental health, for instance, of 16-year-old girls today. Do you know what? If I had a 16-year-old girl standing here and saying, what can I do to improve humankind? Do you know what I would say? If you want to work in <laughs> I would say from our work in schools, the biggest issue we have is self-esteem. It's lack of self-esteem, especially in a social media world. I would say um, it, and that's why we call our program Esteem. We call it that. And, and actually, people love that. <laughs> um, so 
I would say, work, working with people of your own age to help them to understand that they are beautiful people. It's not a question of how many likes or dislikes they get on social media. May God deliver us from this kind of yeah. nonsense, superficial nonsense. But that we are beautiful people. We can stand in the integrity of who we are right. and what's important to us and affirm each other and stand together and to form peer groups to say, actually, you know, we're, we're not going to go that way. We're going to stand together. This is us. This is how we live. Really important. And working with teachers and so on, and maybe parent-teachers associations and other things. Even just tackling the sexting lunacy which is going on right now and saying, you know, we are, we are work, we're, going to, we're getting everyone in our year to sign a pledge. Yeah, yeah. What's the pledge? We say no naked photographs sent on any phone between any people in our entire year. Right. Why not? So what can a 16-year-old do? You can change the world yeah. for people in your year. That's what I would say. And it, Oh. Asked us to quickly make yeah. an announcement. Um, if anyone knows a Josie, who's a six-year-old Samoan, ponytail, pink shirt, and black tights, can you please make yourselves known to a host as soon as possible? Thank you very much. Well, that's the right way around. It's when you've found the child, but you've lost the parents. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> I'm much more worried when it's the other way around, I have to say. Um, it's heaven and hell fair. Oh, now that's a theological question rather than social action. I refer you to the next session. <laughs> uh, it's heaven and hell fair. You know, uh, for those of you who heard my talk the other the other day, yesterday, I think it was. It feels like a light year ago to me. But you know, about looking up into those scars, stars, and trying to explain to dolphins what's fair when it comes to the design of yachts or um, who, who, who gets food or who doesn't. Or, um, uh, dolphins might not understand why some people are born with brains that are big and some brain, born with brains that are small. And they say, in dolphin land, we all have the same size brains. That's normal. Why have you got... What, what is this about intelligent people or not intelligent? Or some people born and they can win athletic championships and other people can hardly run. This is not fair. And you say, well, human beings are like that. So <laughs> I'm saying there are many things that we don't really understand with our dolphin brain. We don't have the vocabulary. We don't have the mental capacity. All we know is this, and this is a mystery. All we know is that God is the most amazing, wonderful, good creator. Isn't that right? We understand that. And we also understand another fundamental truth. It is not his desire that anyone perish, but they all come to eternal life. Isn't that? That's another fundamental truth. The third fundamental truth is that life has consequences. Life has consequences. You know, if you don't study, you will fail your exams. Okay? You will. Um, you will. <laughs> um, if, you are consistent, if you are consistently unkind and cruel as an individual, you know what? Even in this life, you're likely to reap a fiery whirlwind. There are consequences to the decisions that you carry. Um, if you are a profoundly unspiritual person who hates being in any environment where God's presence is felt, and you cultivate that, and that is your life, it may well be that when you get there to some other place, you will find it far from a pleasant experience. Does that make sense? There are many, many things we do not fully understand. But all we know is this, that God is faithful, he is merciful, he loves, but life has consequences, my friends. 
And we need to take those really, really seriously. That's a tiny answer to something a little bit off, off, the, uh, off the subject of social action. I'm sorry, it's, it's a trivial answer to a deeply profound question. And there are many people on this site who have far greater theological brains than I do. So forgive me, that's my sort of businessman's um, very superficial take on that question. How do you solve the problem of greed? I feel like the world will never be saved as long as money is involved. Well, um, that's a big problem. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong to have ambition for more. Um, there's nothing wrong for a farmer to say, you know, why, you know what, I could grow three times the crop out of this. Actually, I think we're made to do that. We're programmed to do that. Um, the Bible says uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, uh, we are called to control and subdue the earth. Part of controlling and subduing the earth is making the earth do what we want. <laughs> that means to make crops, to build more, to, uh, to produce more. For me, that is not the issue. The issue is if we become enslaved to it, so, we uh, so actually it's more for us, more for me, and I've got more than him. You know, the curse behind that question, there's a curse of comparison. Did you know that? It's an absolute curse. It's when we compare ourselves to other people all the time. Now we're back to the 16-year-old's question. The esteem, self-esteem, self-confidence. So we start to map our own, uh, our own self-worth according to how successful we are, how, how, how big the house is, how big the car is. Now we're in deep, deep, deep dog-do. <laughs> we really are. We are corrupting the very essence of our soul. We're prostituting our future to some absurd notion of human happiness. Because actually we're far then from God's call on our lives. God's call on our lives is to make the very best of the talents that we have. I was lecturing on that this morning at the business seminar. Um, to make the best of the talents that we have. To, 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 to use with great care and stewardship every resource that we are given. Um, and to make wealth and to give it away. Um, and to be generous with what we have. And to be careful we don't get ensnared by it. It's really important that we hold all things lightly. You might already be in a social action program and you say, I'm the CEO. Already I've got a problem with you. I'm the CEO. Why is that? Because actually I'm worried that you're hanging on to your role. The greatest role of leadership is to pass it on, is to enfranchise, is to equip, it's to empower another generation. That's the ministry of Jesus. Jesus raised disciples. They raised others. He passed things on. And so, um, uh, so uh, we need to hold all things lightly. Your role as a leader in the church, hold it lightly. Surrender it every year, I would say. In your mind, put it down. Say, Lord, it's just your ministry. It's not mine. It's just my time to pass it on. I need persuading every year to carry on doing the things I'm doing. Why is that? Because it's really important. You see, we can have greed for roles. We can have greed for influence, greed for uh, recognition, greed for all kinds of things. But God calls us to time and time again to lay it all down and to hold these things lightly. Hold your home lightly, your career lightly. You say, Lord, these, are all, these, these things are just stuff. They belong to you. They have no substance in themselves. How do we deal with greed? How do we deal with greed? We do it by modeling. You know, there's no way the, learn, the world will learn except through example. No words can do anything. I can lecture to you today about social action forever. 
But the only reason you're listening to me is because of Asaph. You see, you can't lead except by example. There's no other school in which people will learn except by example. So as you lead in how you use things and how you hold things lightly, you will model something which others will find worthy of following. And that's how you change the world. Heaven and Hellfair, we've done that one. 16-year-old. Oh, some more. Okay, colonization was spearheaded by missionaries in the 1800s, which has left many Maori, five to six generations, in a state of turmoil. The criminal justice system. Um, we have, what this, this question is about is the angst that this person is feeling about our history, our heritage, our common uh, uh, commonality, our humanity together, and how we resolve some of these complex Maori issues. You know what? I don't have the answer to those questions but all I know is this, that the real answer is love. The real answer is love. One of the things that um, uh, Sheila and I have remarked on and have been just has struck us in the short time we've been here is, um, is, uh, um, uh, is what we see as, as beautiful, multiple, many, many examples of fusions, of, of, uh, of, of marriages, of friendships, of networks, of relationships, of... We, I've just, uh, I, I just, I just, I thank God for that. I look forward to what's going to happen in the next generation and the next generation on. There's a fine line between perfect integration and then loss of identity. And of course, those things uh, create their own tensions, don't they? Because we want, we want uh, communities to retain their identities. On the other hand, we want communities to feel accepted and welcome and integrated and to marry and everything else. And all over the world, these kinds of issues have been played out. Any advice for someone at the starting point of a social justice initiative? How do you maintain your focus and vision when the need is so large? Well, I'm sure you've heard the proverbial story about the, uh, the, ch the guy who walks along the beach and he sees all these uh, starfish washed up on the beach and he's, he's chucking a few in and there's about 10 million there and someone says, you're completely wasting your time. And he says, I know, but it's not a waste of time for him, is it? <laughs> and chucks them in. <laughs> and you know what? Uh, we're not responsible for the total lot of humankind. The story of the Samaritan and his neighbor is that you are responsible for responding to the needs that are right under your very nose. And so often I think we say, oh, I wonder about this. Oh, should I give money to this? Or should I give money to that? So for goodness sake, just give money to something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we get so, so, so wrapped up in turmoils and complexity, especially when we're thinking about how to um, help in a place like Africa. So I just think it's really, really important. Make a start. Start where you are. I use the resources that God has given you, and the most important one is your heart. It's your heart and your time. And how do you maintain focus and vision when the need is so large? As I say, you concentrate on the one. It's the one prisoner you've been visiting in prison for the last five years. Hallelujah. You write to them faithfully. For no other reason, he was your next-door neighbor. He was your neighbor, and he still is. Hallelujah. That's what a movement's all about. It's not a movement of people all doing the same thing. It's a movement of people doing 100 million acts of human kindness every single week. Isn't that amazing? That's what it's all about. Um, another one. Okay, um, how do you not become overwhelmed by the burden of need? There are so many great causes looking for support, but appreciate your thoughts. I think that's a very, very sensitive question. I think, once again, I just say, you know what? Um, 
just do something. It's easy to be paralyzed. And just, we, we had a whole session on being paralyzed, didn't we? Was it last night? I can't remember. But it's so easy to feel paralyzed. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. But you know what? Look around you. There's needs right under your very nose. There's small things that you can do, tiny things that make a huge difference. I described yesterday um, the ministry of a friend of ours called Tanya who writes little notes. You could say, well, actually, I can write a note. <laughs> I can write a note to someone in prison. I can write a note to someone who feels suicidal at the moment, even if I'm in a hospital bed, the other side of the world, and forget the emails, they don't count. Physical notes in a virtual world, they really matter. So small things, small things make a huge difference. So don't be overwhelmed. Just say, Lord, here I am today. You know, the, the big prayer I have each morning is, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Tomorrow will take care of itself. I just want to know now. I want to know now. And you can start every day. Actually, you get onto the bus, you can smile. <laughs> the bus. You can say thank you to the person who's cleaning the toilet on the way out. Say, I really appreciate what you've done for me today. Thank you. God bless you. Just the little things. You know, a hundred million acts of human kindness would soon change the world. How do you change people who intend to keep taking handouts and using and deceiving you? That can be a challenge. I remember once, uh, um, I don't know how it happened, uh, we had uh, one or two children at the time. We were living in a two-bedroom flat, and um, uh, we felt sorry for a tramp, and we invited him into our home. We fed him and watered him, and uh, after two or three days, we realized he was stealing from us. I said to him, I wish you'd asked. Here's 50 quid. <laughs> the principle was he was stealing. And, uh, um, you know, um, at the end of the day, you have to work out who you're called to help. I think the people who deliberately deceive and, and, and trick you up and things like that, at the end of the day, you have to say, look, you know what? There's other fish in the sea. <laughs> if you're going to abuse this, fine. You're on your own, mate. Okay? Um, we're not called to, to help everybody in the world. We're called to make the difference. Uh, for Jesus wherever we can. And we need real wisdom about how we do that. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, especially, yeah. Building a better life or world. What is a better world and what does it feel like? Yes, there may be bigger significant things, but how or when do we realize the final value of doing small things great? Well, building a better life. What does a better world look like? Well, you know, when you're helping people, I think it, it, you have to start with them. See, the, the, I'll tell you the biggest mistake in social action is that you have a decision in your mind about what will make that person's life better. Actually, we need to start with them. The first thing we need to ask is say, can I just listen to who you are? Tell me your story. And then we need to say, let me hold up a mirror to you and make sure I've heard it clearly. Let me feed back to you what I'm hearing you saying. Is that right? And then when we're sure we've achieved an understanding, then is the time we can really start to pray for wisdom as to how to help that individual. Yeah? Does that make sense? Really important. Sometimes people negate away social action stuff with personal responsibility. How is social justice connected to it? That's true, especially in the church. We've been very good at making a huge excuse. Every time Jesus has reminded us of the story of the Samaritan, he said, yes, but it's his fault. He should never have gone down there that time of night on his own. I mean, what do you ask for? It's ridiculous. Everybody knows you go down with a friend. You always get mugged if you go down on your own. You know, it's amazing how judgmental we are, how harsh we are. We say it's all their fault. Well, one, that might be true, or it might not. But two, they're still in the situation anyway, okay? <laughs> the fact is, the Samaritan's just been mugged. What are you going to do? Now, we can sort out later whether he was wise or not, and lessons learnt, and whether you're going to get mugged next week. 
But for right now, he's got a broken leg, he's got no food, he's had all his money robbed, he's lost his passport, and you're the only human being that's there. Everyone else has walked by, including the church leaders. And what are we going to do for him? That's the Jesus challenge. So we sort out now, we try to learn the lessons later. Yes, does that make sense? It's really important. Now, so often Christians even have backed off from social action altogether. They said, oh, that's for liberals and, and the social activists who, we preach the gospel. Say, okay. But actually, I've already shown you statistics. I did so yesterday, which is that church in New Zealand is becoming famous for doing good. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And because of that, you are earning the right to speak. Yes, this morning, we had a business seminar. I think there were probably 20 or 30 people in that seminar who didn't know Jesus at all. They've been dragged there by a whole load of other people who I met yesterday. He said, oh, I'm bringing all my leadership team. I'm bringing my family. I'm bringing my husband. He's not a Christian yet. I said, okay, fine. But I tell you, I had an easy ride. Why is that? Because they were fundamentally open. Why is that? Because it's not just because you're nice people. It's because actually the whole atmosphere in New Zealand is very positive to people of faith. I've shown that to you in the statistics. 70% of the people in New Zealand think that Christians on the whole are very good news. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Now that has come out of a legacy of social action. Being involved, without making a bigger song or dance about it, just being involved in little things, hundreds of millions of acts of human kindness, and some of them gigantic acts. And the church is famous for that. Hallelujah. Um, really, oh my word. Is it okay to pray for people who are experiencing psychosis and mental health issues, or will it make things worse for them? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, that's a very, very important question. Uh, I'm flooded out. I'm trying to go through them properly. Um, okay, mental illness, I say as a physician, is something you need to be very, very careful about. Okay? If you're not careful, you have someone who c commits suicide as a result of some, some uh, inexperienced and amateurish um, approach to someone who's an extraordinarily great need. The even more care is needed in a situation where someone says, oh, I've been healed, I'm no longer whatever it is, and I'm throwing away all the drugs that the psychologist told me, a psychiatrist told me I had to take. Be very careful. When Jesus healed the lepers, what did he tell them to do? Go to the temple. Why is that? Get it checked out. Get it checked out. So uh, I would say if someone, if you have prayed for someone, let's, let's suppose they've got schizophrenia, okay? That can be a very severe mental illness where people start seeing things that are not there. They start seeing rabbits coming out of the loudspeakers and things like that. Now, before you start deciding that they're all possessed, let me tell you this. I can give you a chemical and they disappear. Wow. So are you telling me that, that demons respond to chemicals? I know there's a chemical imbalance inside their brain. I can measure it. I can show you the reason why they're seeing green monkeys coming out of the loudspeakers. When I correct that chemical defect, they are effectively cured. Now, if they, the trouble is, someone with that particular condition then feels normal, and they don't like the side effects, so they stop the medicine. So then what happens? Especially after going to a prayer meeting. Well, what happens, I'll tell you, they're fine for the first six weeks, three months later. A month after that, it might be that particular person actually has heard a voice. He thinks he's heard a voice. He hasn't. He's just he's seen, literally seeing things. He's psychotic. He thinks he's heard a voice that has told him to go and take an axe and cut off the head of his pet rabbit. I'm not so worried about the pet rabbit, but I'm very worried that the next thing might be he's been told to cut off the head 
of another human being. Now, I, I, I'm just saying we need to have compassion and understanding for people who have chemical imbalances inside their heads for which there is some treatment that can be very effective. Let's be very, very careful about these things. So yes, we pray for people, we support them, we encourage them, but be wise. If someone has been given a formal psychiatric diagnosis, please be wise before you take on the authority of the entire medical profession and pronounce something you're quite frankly not qualified to say. Now, it might be that the person's been spectacularly healed, that the chemical imbalance is gone, and in fact, they remain stable for the rest of their lives. They never need any medication at all. Hallelujah. But let's be careful what we do. The same with something like asthma, intermittent asthma. Asthma is one of the commonest killers of people in the, New in the UK and in New Zealand. In my country, death rates from asthma are soaring. Do you know the real risk of asthma? It happens to you occasionally. So you can come to a prayer meeting, you think you've been healed, throw all the stuff away, and you're absolutely fine. For how long? A week? A month? Two months? Six months? A year? And then dead. We need to be careful, my friends. So if you, in a, if you think you've been healed of a potentially life-threatening condition, you go to the temple doctors <laughs> and get it checked out. Yeah, it's very important. And actually, why should you be afraid of that? How much greater a miracle to have it certified, yeah? yeah? Isn't it? Yeah. Amen? Isn't that right? Yeah. Let's have a real story. Okay, uh, another one. My goodness me, these are very varied questions today. How do you deal with someone... Um, or respond to someone from the lesbian and uh, uh, and gay and uh, bisexual community. I think that's what it is here. I can hardly read it. That is a highly complex question, um, and uh, I can't answer it fully in the last in just 30 seconds without doing a huge disservice to all kinds of people. So what I'm going to say is this. What I'm going to say is another question coming. What I'm going to say is this. From my experience of looking after people with HIV and AIDS, which took uh, many of whom came from that particular community uh, in the early days of ASSET. And I can tell you this, we were hounded from pillar to post in the media. I was, who are these right-wing, evangelical, Bible-believing bigots who are trying to look after gay men and etc. lifestyles they don't approve of and all this. And we had all this. And suddenly it all turned around. And uh, one of the, gre the greatest champions of evangelicals looking after people with HIV at home were, guess who? Members of the lesbian gay community. <laughs> Why? I remember one of our first patients, John Barker Littlewood. Uh, and he would often come to meetings like this. He'd say, I'm a Buddhist, but I want to tell you what it's like to have HIV. And I said, fine. And, and you know what? He became a Christian right at the end of his life, literally on his deathbed, a most amazing story. But that's, that's not the point. The point is this. He was phoning up all his friends saying, hey, hello, mate. How are you? To someone else who's dying of HIV. You need to get my Christians in, he says. They're real good news. <laughs> Why? Because he's experiencing the unconditional love of God. The unconditional love of God. Listen, God doesn't ask, Jesus doesn't ask people sexuality before he <laughs> starts to talk to them about his love or his purpose or his kingdom. I'm not talking about lifestyle issues. I'm not talking about the theology of, 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 uh, of, uh, of sex, sexual union um, which, as, as, as evangelicals, we believe is confined to a relationship between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about compassion, understanding, love, care, affection, recognition, support. And these are highly complex areas, my friends. I said to you, I'm not going to do justice to this. 
and I can see the flaming arrows are going to hit me through social media in the next 50 minutes if I'm not careful. So I'll now shut up and go on to another topic, if that's all right. But if you want to know more about such a topic, I think, you know, I'd say it's a huge, huge pastoral area. One more. Oh, my word. What are the trends in the... Oh, my... Um, how, do you work with the uh, how do you work with people who think Christians use God as an excused crutch? Um... That's fine. Let them think that you're using God as an excuse on a crutch. That's fine. I have no problem with that. <laughs> you just love them to bits and keep on going. Okay. I, I'm sorry we've got no more time now. I think I'm, I'm literally out of time because I'm going to cramp into the... This room's got to completely turn around and then we've got to have <laughs> another session on leadership, which you hope you will be in. Let's just pray together, shall we? Now, forgive me. I've glossed over many, many... The trouble of taking Q&A is you can find yourself in a great morass of complex issues and you don't do justice to any of them but I've tried um, and I'm going to hang around I'll be here, here in the corner if anyone would like to talk to me about any of the things that I've said Father I thank you for the opportunity to touch and change our world I thank you Father that as we surrender ourselves into your hands that you can join us arm with arm hand in hand heart with heart to create uh, people movements, people movements of faith that will touch and transform our world in your name. And I thank you for all those in this room who are passionate about social action, who are deeply involved, who have hundreds of thousands of acts of human kindness every year. I thank you for the movements of social action already embedded into Shout and the church networks around a world that are connected right here in this conference. And we pray for each other and we pray for the rest of the church that you'll give us wisdom and strength and courage and the resources to make the difference you've called us to make. In the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen. Thank you very much.